I'm so grateful to be with you all this morning. Um, I'm grateful also that Father Peter has had this last minute opportunity to go to Canada. I think it's been like two years since his family has actually been able to go. So this is a very joyful and a needful thing. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here and to proclaim the word of God to you. And this morning, we're continuing in the preaching series that y'all have been in for some time. I think it's the past several months on St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And so read in its totality, this letter is St. Paul's summary of the whole gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to a predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish audience. And today I get the immense privilege of talking to you about the very climax of this letter. If you spent any time with this letter before reading it on your own or you've heard it preached on before, you know chapter eight is really the climax of this whole letter. It's really the climax of it, and you can tell because it's the point at which Paul breaks down in ecstasy and ardent worship. Words actually fail him in his desire to communicate the immensity of the privilege that we have as Christians. We have, Paul tells us today in this passage, this incredible inheritance from Christ Jesus. It belongs to every Christian. If you're baptized, this inheritance is yours. We are co-heirs of literally everything with Christ because we belong to Christ's divine family. That's the word of God for us this morning. Christ was not ashamed to bear the shame and the indignity of the cross for you so that he could call you and me brothers and sisters, adopted children of God. That is very good news. In this passage, Paul is writing in Greek, but he breaks off at this one word. He says, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. He breaks off from the Greek that he's writing, and he says this word in Aramaic, Abba. Why does he do that? He does it because he's quoting the words of Jesus himself. Abba is what Jesus called the Father. And now our inheritance as Christians, as Jesus' brothers and sisters, as part of the royal family who will inherit literally everything, the entire cosmos, is that we are able to speak with Jesus, Abba, Father. We have an intimacy that has been granted to the Father through the work of Jesus, and that work of Jesus being applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is the good news this morning. Jesus did not hesitate to enter the grave for us. He did not hesitate to change the very nature of death itself for us so that we could have a resurrection like his, so that we could become co-heirs with him of everything. Now look, everything about American culture pushes us away from having this at the center of our life. It pushes us towards a flatly secular vision of life. Everything pushes us to be focused on building up our own status and our own brand and making sure that we have piles of cash to be able to afford everything. And that's truly a challenge to the life of faith. But hey, listen, this is not a new problem, actually. This is literally the problem that every generation since the death and resurrection of Jesus has had. It's a problem for every culture everywhere and for all time. It's, the tradition is called the problem of worldliness, okay? So later today, I actually want to encourage you to go and read 2 Peter 3 and see that the church that Peter is addressing there has the same problem that we have now, okay? It's a problem of not being able to keep this reality, this inheritance that we have before the eyes of our hearts. It's the same problem that's going on in the Roman church too. 
It's what St. Paul's addressing. It's why he has to build up to this climax where he is, is literally in ecstatic worship um, in the Holy Spirit, worship of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. This problem of worldliness or secularity is the problem of having our internal gaze directed upon what's directly in front of us, on the anxieties that come from scarcity and concerns about status and so on. It's really, really hard to stay focused on the basic and most central fact of the Christian faith when it contradicts the evidence of your senses. That's actually what Peter says. That passage that I told you to read later on, it's like in Peter 3, that's what he says. He says, people are talking to him and they're like, they're like, you know, everything since Jesus died has gone on just the same way it went on for our ancestors. And Peter says, keep the fact of Jesus in front of your face at all times. Keep this inheritance that we have as the saints in the Lord before your face. We are continuously brought back in scripture to the person and the work of Jesus. What Jesus has accomplished for us is to give us an inheritance that is eternal and completely unshakable and unassailable. And it is only in having the mind of Christ being renewed over and over again by having the Holy Spirit apply that work of Jesus to our minds and our hearts that we can live from an imagination that has the reality of what Jesus has accomplished as most basic, most fundamental for us. Now, if any of you know me, which most of you don't, but some of you do, you know that my big thing is the church fathers. I love the patristic age. So in every sermon that I ever preach, I'm gonna bring some church fathers into it. Just, just sit tight and, and just, just wait for it. All right, so in the fifth century, there was a Pope in Rome named Leo the Great, and he preached a bunch of Lenten sermons. I'm going somewhere with this. Just wait, it connects up, just hold on. And these sermons have been handed down to us across the ages. Now, as you might imagine, for a bunch of Lenten sermons, it's full of a bunch of admonitions and commands. Do this, don't do that, right? But you wanna know how he begins it all? This is the most important thing for you to remember as you are thinking about this passage from Romans today. He says, Christians, remember your dignity. That's why all of this stuff matters. That's why it matters that you do these things, that you don't do these things. It's because you have the dignity of co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Remember your dignity. Remember your dignity, church, that you belong to the family of Jesus Christ, which extends to every tribe and tongue and nation across history and geography, and which unites you even to the angels and the archangels and the whole company of heaven. This whole company, together with us in this assembly this morning, is joined together in a cosmic amen, which no power and no principality can shake. Man, they do try. The world feels heavy right now, doesn't it? We were just talking in the, this morning about what's going on in Afghanistan right now. The Taliban has overrun that entire country and subjected women and children, women to forced marriages and children to all kinds of bondage. It's horrible. It's horrifying. We feel powerless. And in fact, we are powerless. There's literally nothing we can do about that. The world is heavy. But no power and no principality can shake the work that Jesus Christ is doing and reconciling the world to himself. And it cannot shake the inheritance that we have as Christians. The bedrock of the Christian life is this gospel. It is not advice. It's not a path to self-actualization or inner peace or anything like that. It's news. It's 
a fact that has been accomplished. Fundamentally, what Jesus has done is to change the nature of our reality itself. He has accomplished reconciliation between us and God, independently of anything that we have done on our behalf and completely independently of our say-so. We weren't like, hey, Jesus, could you accomplish this for me? We didn't even know what the problem was. We didn't even know its dimensions. Jesus knew all of that on our behalf and accomplished it on our behalf, independently of anything that we have done. And so the invitation this morning to the gospel is therefore not to try a new product that's gonna make your life work better. It's instead an invitation to recognize the fact that Jesus has changed the very reality of the cosmos itself. He has defeated death. Y'all heard about Romans 6 very recently, I'm assuming. In Romans 6, Paul says that death is like a universal sovereign that conquers everything. And Jesus has broken that universal sovereignty. He's become the first fruits of the resurrection. He has defeated death on our behalf so that we can have this promise of a future resurrection that looks like his. And so the invitation is to put our trust and our hope in that, to rethink our own lives in light of that reality from the ground up. It's to give our allegiance to the one who holds the keys to death in Hades, as Revelation 1 says, and to the slavery of the fear of death. It is to put our, our hope in the one who has defeated our slavery to the fear of death. That's what Hebrews 2 says. Now, look, I said all of this. All of this is true. This is our inheritance. And yet I wanna spend the rest of our time this morning addressing a certain distortion in the way that we Americans tend to hear this language of inheritance, okay? Now, I don't wanna presume that everyone here is an American or otherwise is an individualistic Westerner, but most of us in this room probably are. I certainly am. And, and, uh, and basically that means that we're individualists. And so we come to the Bible as individualists. We hear what Paul is saying this morning as, it's like, wow, isn't it wonderful that I personally possess the Holy Spirit and that I personally have this inheritance? But the gospel that Paul is announcing is not primarily a gospel that's addressed to the individuals that he's speaking to. It has implications, of course, for all those individuals, for all of us as individuals. But if you go back to the very beginning of Romans and look at what Paul says he's doing in verse five, he says he's very clearly saying that his calling is to call the nations, the Gentiles. That's the, the word Gentiles means nations. The nations corporately to the obedience that comes from faith in the name of Jesus Christ. What Jesus secures in the gospel for all who trust him is the righteousness or justice of God. That's what Paul says. The gospel is that Jesus has accomplished this justice or righteousness of God. And these words, I say them both, righteousness and justice, because they're both essential to translate the Greek word that Paul uses. It's the word dikaiosune. We actually don't understand this Greek word at all unless we use both of those words to translate it. The significance of the fact that we have to use both of the words to translate it is this. The gospel is not primarily about personal morality. It's not about simply reconciling individuals to God so that we can live personally moral lives. It involves that. It's not less than that, but it's significantly more than that. Actually, what the gospel is about is about creating the conditions of justice. But the justice of the gospel is also righteousness, which means that the justice of the gospel is a relational justice. 
It's not an impersonal justice. It's not a justice that simply gives each person their due or a justice that results in retribution for infractions. In fact, it's really important for me to say here that we don't get what we deserve in the gospel. And that is itself part of the good news. Literally every person in every culture that's ever existed is in a state of rebellion against God and therefore deserves only destruction. So actually the good news of the gospel is that we're not getting retribution. We're not getting what we deserve. Rather, the justice and the righteousness of the gospel is a restorative justice. It's a rehabilitative justice. It's a justice of wholeness. That is the justice that the Holy Spirit forming Christ in us is meant to secure for us. That justice, that wholeness is part of that grand inheritance that we are getting as co-heirs with Jesus. It's a justice that involves the repair of fractured relationships between God and humanity, first and foremost and most importantly, but then, and as a consequence of that, between one human being and another and between one community and another. In the American church, I think it's really easy for us to grasp the first two, right? I mean, God, I mean, we heard it in the summary of the gospel, right? God wants us to love the Lord our God with our whole self, soul, mind, and heart, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We kind of get that, right, as Americans. It's more difficult to see this third dimension of the gospel healing community relationships. But it's this third aspect of justice or righteousness that Paul primarily has in mind in writing Romans. He's saying that the restoration of justice between God and humanity has as one of its purposes the restoration of broken community between the nations or peoples of the earth, which constituted an original unity in God's design. In other words, Paul in his letter is addressing Jews and Gentiles, whole communities or peoples, and individuals insofar as they belong to those communities. And all of these nations are being combined, united into a new community, without losing what's significant about them as communities. This new community that's being formed from other communities is the body of Christ, and that is what Paul is writing about. For Paul, the problem of corporate reconciliation is first and foremost in his mind in a way that it's not for us. He is a Jew who has been appointed as the apostle to the Gentiles, so it has to be on his mind in a way that's not directly for us as we read this text. So for Paul, the most intractable, intractable problem that human beings face is the problem of shattered relationships between whole peoples, whole communities. And when he says here in chapter 8 that we cry, Abba, Father, with Jesus, he means that we do so as individuals who are embedded with, within larger cultural structures, not as solitary individuals for whom culture and tribe has ceased to matter. To Romans, I want to say, is best understood as a theology of and a roadmap for a truly multi-ethnic church, a church that reconciles the nations to one another. The first and foremost, the fractured relationship that must be repaired is a vertical one. It's the relationship between God and the humanity that he created. And in fact, no other justice or righteousness is possible unless this fundamental relationship is repaired. But the restoration of justice also involves the fractured relationship which exists between the human family. From the beginning, when sin and death came creeping in, the human family has been characterized by relations of oppression and murder and vengeance. We have to go back to that first story, right, in Genesis chapters 3 and 4. What's that first relationship that is described between 
brothers, the murderous one. It's a relationship of vengeance. It's a relationship of selfishness and hostility. A terrible and rebellious spirit or principle has entered the human heart and turned all of our communities to rebellion and defiance against the creator and his purposes. Paul has different names in his letter for the spirit of principle. Sometimes he calls it sin. Sometimes he calls it death. Sometimes he calls it flesh. These are all different ways that Paul uses to get at this mystery of iniquity. That's actually his name for the, the totality of it in 2 Thessalonians. But this mystery of iniquity is so multifaceted that he approaches it from all these different angles. The wicked spirit that Paul is describing goes beyond what any human actor intends and beyond the reach of any actor or community to restrain. It's beyond the power of all of us. We've become deluded in the modern age and thinking we can solve all of our problems by social engineering. False. We can't. All of this goes beyond the power of any actor or community to restrain. And Paul says, as do the rest of the New Testament authors, that this wicked spirit or principle is an enslaving spirit. You heard that language this morning in the text. The Holy Spirit makes us no longer slaves. What has enslaved us? It's this wicked principle, the mystery of iniquity. It makes us slaves of its own logic and it drives us to its own purposes, which are the annihilation of everything good and true and beautiful that God has created. This wicked spirit which enslaves us and drives us ruthlessly along what Paul calls in this letter the way of death or the law of sin and death enshrines suspicion and murder and hatred as basic principles within the social order all over the globe for all of history. This evil is, of course, personal. I'm not saying it's not personal. It's stoked by the wicked intentions and actions of all of humanity. But it's also, as I said, transpersonal, outside of personal control. It washes over us. It assaults us in ways that are experienced as impersonal and systemic and structural. And indeed, it is all of these things. It's structural and systemic. It's personal, and it is transpersonal and demonic. The historic church has actually given us some really sturdy words to talk about these three aspects of evil, which must be combated in their own way, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You guys heard those terms before? If you listen in the baptismal service, every single time we take these, we take these uh, renunciations, right, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But all of those are, are highlighting a specific facet or attribute of evil that Paul is getting at in this letter to the Romans. So next time, you know, children or adults are baptized here, Church of the Cross, look out for this language. We renounce all these forms of evil every time we baptize someone into the faith. So don't be fooled into thinking that the diagnosis that our most basic problems are personal, transpersonal, and demonic, or structural is new. There's nothing new about that. The church has always understood this point well, and they get it from St. Paul. St. Paul's own words in Romans that he uses to describe evil, sin, death, and flesh, are each highlighting a dimension of, hu of human relationships, right? I mean, sin is focusing on the fact that our relationships are transgressive. Our relationships with God and with each other are transgressive. When Paul uses this word death, he, he's focusing on the element of evil where, uh, where, where sin lays waste and destroys everything that God has made good. Death for Paul is not simply talking about the cessation of biological function. He's talking about the power of death that makes us die a thousand deaths before we're dead. Thomas Long, and I think this is really helpful, calls this power or force, capital D, death. It's very helpful language. In this sense, death is like a wicked and unstoppable sovereign. Remember, I, just, I said that earlier in Romans chapter six, that's how Paul describes it. He sees it as a universal sovereign, colonizes territory. 
It lays waste to whole institutions, whole societies, whole intellectual traditions are polluted and, disrupt, and, and, and disrupted and corrupted and twisted by this power of death. And under its jaundiced effect, intentions and relations and actions are all twisted and corrupted and polluted and defaced and vandalized. It's truly a destructive force. And flesh, as Paul uses it, it's really important to understand this point, does not refer to our bodies themselves, but to ways of using bodies, measuring and judging bodies that is contrary to the way that God intends. We've come to understand, typically, as uh, the word flesh is referring to, maybe sexuality. And that definitely is included in the way that Paul uses the term elsewhere. But here in Romans, and also in the letter to the Galatians, what it actually involves is a social relationship, a relational reality. It's the separation of peoples into superior and inferior flesh and then privileging or depreciating them as such. So for Paul, ethnocentrism is flesh. For us in our context, racism is flesh. That's what Paul is getting at here in the letter to the Romans. All three of the words that Paul uses to describe the mystery of iniquity is, is, are referring to both individual and corporate realities. That's the point that I've been trying to stress here. I hope that's come through. These words describe a reality that is both communal and individual in its effect. And that is what makes it so difficult, so intractable. I recently listened to a podcast in which the Rwandan Jesuit Jean-Baptiste Ganza talked about the Hutu massacre of the Tutsi minority in 1994. He himself is Tutsi, and his family was killed by, by uh, Hutu marauders. Over one million people were killed in this country. Most of them had to death by machete. I mean, truly an unspeakable act of horror and genocide. The murders included five of Father Gonza's own siblings and his parents. And Father Gonza does talk about his struggles to forgive his family's murderers. That's part of the struggle that he, that he feels. But for him, the problem goes far beyond this. It's the communal dimension of the sin that is most difficult for him to wrestle with. It involves the fraught history between these two tribes, and it involves unchosen and unchangeable aspects of his personhood and the personhood of his family. And then let's add to this the much more difficult and unspeakable dimension to deal with as a Christian, which is that everyone who was involved in these murders was a member of a church, Catholic or Protestant. So it was baptized Christians who were by these fiendish acts destroying the family of God, which they professed. So Father Gonza understands, I think, in a way that's often hard for we American individualists to, that the chief problem with humanity is enslavement to the tribalistic and fratricidal impulse to distrust and destroy those who are not like us. And he understands, I think, in a way that we are just beginning to as an American church, that walking in the life of the Spirit is not automatic as a Christian. The destruction of the best results in the worst. It's very possible to be identified as a Christian and yet be entirely unconverted to Christ. So why does Father Gonza remain a Christian? Why do any of us remain Christian when even the church has been engaged in these horrible atrocities over the centuries? For Father Gonza, it's only because he sees and trusts what Jesus is doing what Christ came to do, what Christ 
came to do was fundamentally to repair our relationship with God so that relationships between persons and communities could also be repaired. That is what he sees as the fundamentally the power of the Spirit to affect. It is the power of the Spirit to create Christ in us so that we can live out this costly and sacrificial life of relational repair. It is, it is that he has hope in the life of the Spirit that it is possible that he can have hope for forgiveness for restitution, for reconciliation, that he can go on professing the faith. Indeed, it was to proclaim this reality that he later became a Roman Catholic priest and a member of the Jesuit order. That is faith. That is trust in the gospel. That is the power of the Holy Spirit working in Father Gonza. It is the power of the gospel for each of us here today. When the gospel is reduced to individualistic dimensions, it's rendered powerless to address this kind of tribal infraction, which is humanity's deepest problem. If we read the scriptures within its original context, or indeed the context within the original reception of this, of this letter within the first centuries of the church, it's precisely there in its communal dimensions that the power of the gospel is most evident. It's most awe-inspiring. John Chrysostom, a Syrian bishop preaching in the fourth century, said that of one and of the other, Christ makes a single body. Thus, he who lives in Rome looks on the Indians as his own members. Is there any union to be compared with that? Christ is the head of all. So listen very carefully to what John Chrysostom is saying there. He's not saying that Romans cease to be Romans or Indians cease to be Indians. He's saying that while remaining Romans and Indians, they yet come together and see one another as brothers and sisters, as members of one another in Christ, who is the head of all. That's what was most powerful. That was what was most striking to these first communities of Christians. When St. Paul describes the righteousness or justice that comes by faith in the Messiah, he's talking specifically about relational repair that's happening between opposing tribes, between opposing communities. This is not a problem that can be cured by more education or better social policies. Now listen, I'm all for that. I'm all for education and better social policies. But as a priest in the Church of Christ, I have to inform you they don't go deep enough. It is, Paul says, the power of sin, the power of death, the power of flesh that have enslaved humanity. And the only thing that has power over them and therefore power over their effects in our lives is the faithfulness of the Messiah by which he has conquered them. It is the Messiah living in us by the Spirit of Christ. That is the only way in which these horrible things that have come into our midst, the power of sin, death, and flesh, can be cured. If we are led by the Spirit, then the Spirit is making us, as Martin Luther said, into little Christs who can speak in the voice of Christ with the words of Christ, Abba, Father. The Spirit is reconciling us first to the Father, the creator and the restorer of all, and then also, and because of that restoration, to one another individually and corporately, interpersonally and communally. To come at this mystery from another, from another angle, we can say that what the Spirit is doing is liberating us from slavery to what is basest and lowest in us, what is personally and communally most destructive in us, and making us like Christ if he were in our place doing what he would do if he lived in our culture and our bodies and our circumstances. That is why 
Paul struggles with language here, right? I mean, the reality that he's describing is so mystical. It describes such a tremendous union with Jesus through the Spirit that Jesus actually walks through us, touches with our hands, speaks with our lips, and we speak with his. We say, Abba, Father, together with Jesus in this union. By the way, Father David here wrote a tremendous book on union with Christ. Just a little blurb for him right now. You can read that later. But if you want to understand union with Christ, Father David can help you out. But these are words that go beyond our ability to express, beyond St. Paul's tremendous rhetorical capacity to express. And again, it's important for us to notice the way in which Paul speaks about this relationship with the Spirit. We're not in the driver's seat of it. We're led by the Spirit. We don't control where we go and what becomes of us as we live in the Spirit. But Paul makes it clear what the result of that process is going to be. If we're living by the Spirit and not by the flesh, we're going to be made co-heirs with Christ, but also co-sufferers with Christ. If we're living by the Spirit and not by the flesh, it will involve costly suffering for the sake of the gospel that looks like the suffering that Jesus suffered. And this is precisely what it means to be devoted to this multi-ethnic vision of the gospel, this vision of costly relational repair that Paul is describing. It looks like suffering. To give yourself to a life of relational repair interpersonally and corporately is painful. It hurts. It was costly and painful for the early church who attempted to live it out, and it will be costly and painful because of the wounds that we have inflicted upon one another and that the communities of which we are a part have inflicted upon one another. Now look, I know that the church in America has a checkered history in living out the mandate of its own scriptures in this respect. I mean, to begin with, as American Christians in a predominantly white tradition, we owe it to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters to familiarize ourselves with the reason why African Americans, Latinos and Latinas, and Asian Americans, and so on, have found it necessary to have their own churches. That's a stain upon the American church that we have come to live this way. And we cannot practice relational repair unless we're ready to confess not only the individual, but the communal and the structural ways in which we've harmed one another. But let's also be clear about this fact. This work makes literally no sense on secular terms. There are any number of voices right now calling for a reckoning of our racial history as a nation, and 0% of them are offering any hope. These voices can rightly say that the church in America has not lived by the Spirit. They can rightly make the accusation that we have failed to live out the righteousness and justice of God that Jesus has won for us. We have, they can rightly point out that we have failed in the work of relational repair. We've even failed to be clear in our understanding that that was our duty in the first place. They can rightly say that the church in America has not lived a sacrificial life dedicated to relational pair between persons and across cultures. And the church's failures in America are on full display for the world to see and to mock and to our shame, to mock the one who has made us his body. But we have hope. We have hope that the world does not have. We have hope that violence and hatred are not the final word for humanity or for the church of Jesus Christ. We have hope that forgiveness and restitution and reconciliation are possible, and that the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can make a community that is united where before there was only grievance and division. We have hope that it is never too late for the church to be what St. Paul says it is, the ground and pillar of the faith and the hope of the world, 
Because it is in the church that the Holy Spirit is most intensively at work. It is the church where the Holy Spirit is forming a people that can speak with the words of Jesus, Abba, Father. It is in the church where we can see this reconciliation. If we are persuaded that a life that is devoted to relational repair is what Jesus has given himself to, and it is what he therefore wishes that we give ourselves to, then even now, even today, we can be led by the Spirit into the life of suffering love that is lived in imitation to Jesus. This is only possible if we have been first reconciled with the Father through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore that we've been given the inheritance of Jesus. This only makes sense if we are people with great dignity. We are people who will stand to inherit everything because God has made us co-heirs with Jesus. God has implanted his spirit within us and he shed his own love abroad in our hearts. But if that's what's true about you today, if you've pinned your trust and your hope upon the person of Jesus, his person and his work, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, that's actually what you can hope for. You can hope that the Spirit will lead us as a community, us as individuals into that life. And that that life will shine with the brilliance of a thousand suns before the world. My friends, we have such tremendous dignity because everything Christ possesses is ours. We have his inheritance. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Therefore, I am no longer a slave to sin and flesh, but I am a son with an inheritance. Therefore, you, my friends, are no longer slaves to sin and death, but you are sons and daughters of the king with an inheritance of literally everything. So Christians, remember your dignity. Remember the great work of relational repair to which you have been called. And remember, most of all, that it is the Holy Spirit who lives in you that makes this possible, that will lead you into all truth, that will lead you into the sacrificial life of relational repair, that will give you the hope of true repentance and true reconciliation. And the Holy Spirit will lead us to share in Christ's glory, even as he leads us into his suffering. Pray this all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.